This week, a world history teacher in Seattle says men can get pregnant, then makes it a test question for students. Harvard's president is a plagiarist? New evidence suggests the embattled leader isn't academically qualified for the job. And a new study says raising a mentally healthy child requires nothing more than common sense parenting. These stories and much more this week on The Lion Week in Review. Welcome into this week's edition of The Lion Week in Review. It's a weekly look at the culture, the courts, your state capital, and your kids. I'm Chris Stegall. Now let's meet our panel, some of the men and women behind the stories at readlion.com. Josh Mann is the managing editor. Michael Ryan is executive editor. And Faith Perkins is staff writer at The Lion. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. The culture. We say you mention that pretty regularly at uh, readlion.com. The pro-life issue is one that uh, I have not often discussed with you, but you weigh into it here. There was an interesting hearing on Capitol Hill, um, and we've seen this issue come up before when it, as it relates to the Department of Justice. Merrick Garland has been accused in the past of targeting Catholics, targeting pro-life folks. Uh, the story of Mark Houck comes to mind as a dad in suburban Philadelphia who was rousted out of his home uh, early in the morning. So this has been a systemic uh, accusation directed at the De Department of Justice. What have you guys written about it? That's right. In fact, Mark's story came up in, in a House Judiciary hearing this week, and it was Kristen Clark, who's the DOJ's Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, who was asked about his case and essentially asked, have you apologized to him for going after him? He was arrested at his home by the FBI in a raid and um, ultimately prosecuted for a FACE Act violation. What is that? By the way, I don't mean to put you on the spot. FACE Act is, if, if memory serves, that is an, an act uh, to keep people from prohibiting or harassing those that would enter an abortion facility. That's that right. right. Okay. It was passed in 94. Yeah. It stands for the Freedom of Access to Clinics okay. Entrances or clinic entrances. And so essentially, you're not supposed to obstruct someone from accessing reproductive health care or damaging property at such a facility. It should apply to pro-life or pro-abortion uh, clinics and, and places and property. But um, U.S. Representative Chip Roy, who, who chairs the subcommittee uh, that was talking to Ms. Clark, said that he was aware of 130 such cases since 1994, 126 of which were prosecuting pro-life folks. Mm -hmm. Only four were essentially prosecuting pro-abortion folks under this. And he said um, it's far from even-handed. That, that handed. That's 97% of the time the DOJ has gone after pro-lifers. That's and under the current Merrick Garland administration. Well, that's since 1994, well, since and under, under her uh, heading, this Kristen Clark's heading as Assistant Attorney General of Civil Rights, similar numbers. Michael, the, yeah, the, the story of Mark Houck in particular, and you can probably speak to this story as well, uh, what was notable about the Mark Houck case, the raid came after mm -hmm lower courts had determined there were no charges to be filed. In fact, the original uh, individual that was claiming to have been assaulted by Mark Houck never showed up for a lower court hearing. It was dropped. It was a year later that DOJ came and raided his home. So is there merit to accusations that the DOJ is um, targeting pro-life folks? 
Well, I think there's certainly a reason to believe that. I mean, as far out of their way as they went to go after Mark Houck, I mean, they just, they superseded all other lower uh, divisions in going after him and just made it a federal case at the start. Um, you know, and, and all of this is not a surprise in that it was last year that the Senate Democrats, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and Time Magazine, all kind of time, uh, uh, they teamed up to warn the country about crisis pregnancy centers, which are pro-life, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they were warning, oh my gosh, these uh, crisis pregnancy centers, or CPCs, outnumber actual abortion clinics three to one. <laughs> time um, even said, quote, anti-abortion pregnancy centers, sometimes called crisis pregnancy centers, I think most all the time, have proliferated in recent years. Sounds like a virus or a terrorist, doesn't it? <laughs> and they went on. While the centers often look sim similar to medical facilities, they are typically faith-based and aim to dissuade people. Now, I'm gonna pause and you insert gasps where appropriate. <laughs> where they aim to dissuade people from having abortions by offering counseling and resources, <laughs> such as free pregnancy tests. Oh my baby clothes, oh, that's awful. diapers, <laughs> and parenting classes. <laughs> yeah, Heaven forbid. Abhorrent. Michael raises a great point, uh, Josh, and that is uh, these, these preg crisis pregnancy centers, uh, they, they seem very specifically to bother certain elements inside the DOJ. Yeah, in fact, Kristen Clark herself once called these pregnancy resource centers fake clinics, I quote, wow. which are harmful, she said, and predatory. And so... <laughs> It's not really a surprise, although it's alarming, that the House Select uh, Subcommittee of, on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, one of the best names for a <laughs> subcommittee, I think, <laughs> said this in a report released last week. The FBI, they say, singled out Americans who are pro-life, pro-family, and support the biological basis for sex and gender distinction as potential domestic terrorists. If that's not chilling, I don't know what is. Yeah, that continues to be an issue. I know you follow at the Lion. Uh, also uh, an issue you follow at the Lion is uh, th this incessant focus on, uh, I guess I will call it objectionable material in, in school books. There was a massive landslide win for a lot of school board races uh, on the Democrat side in places like uh, suburban Philadelphia, which we just mentioned. You wrote a story specifically, Josh, about a central Bucks County school district uh, in, in Philadelphia area, uh, Pennsylvania. Their, their school board president on this point did something that I don't think we've ever seen. Yes, yeah, so um, this, this lady, Karen Smith, was reelected as a school board member and um, is the school board president. And when she was sworn in, she elected not to be sworn in on a Bible, but rather a stack of so-called banned books. These are LGBT-themed books that parents have challenged and found objectionable because they are full of uh, sexualized content. And so she apparently wanted to make a statement. Um, now, she said that she's not particularly religious, that the Bible doesn't hold significant meaning for me, she says. Um, but one of the experts our reporter talked to thought that was a little disingenuous and that really she's just trying to kind of make it political, make a political statement. 
Um, and and our, uh, the expert also took an issue with that whole idea anyway of banned books, which I know um, is something that we've discussed before. Yeah, Faith, I, uh, the content of some of these books, I mean, we, we're not going to do it here, but I know that some of these books of the past have been read in school board meetings, and the school board members have actually said, stop, 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 don't read that in open-air public because it, it, it can't be heard here yet, right? They're perfectly comfortable to keep it in the schools. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting is one of the books that she brought with her, a resident in Texas read it at a school board meeting, one line from it, and he was escorted out by police. Oh, wow. And it was called Flamer. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. Michael, um, can we expect to see more of this, replacing the Bible at swearing-in ceremonies with uh, adult-themed children's books? Oh, goodness knows. Um, <laughs> you know, the thing about that is... Uh, you know, she says the Bible is meaningless to her. Yeah. Well, you know, an oath of office isn't about what it means to you. It's a promise to voters uh, of faithfulness to the Constitution, to the rule of law, to the community, to voters. Um, and as for using the Bible, you know, that's a statement uh, that says you mean what you say and that its seriousness is about what you say is rooted in morality. Um, you know, her choice, these banned books, indicates, I mean, the choice indicates that her fealty is to sexualizing kids rather than anything else. Now, if, if this is a First Amendment problem, you know, that she thinks they're banning books even though they're not banning movies, not banning alcohol, they're not banning cigarettes, you know, for kids, uh, they're making age-appropriate decisions. But if she thinks it's a First Amendment issue, put your hand on the Constitution. So we head out to the Pacific Northwest next, Josh, where uh, it seems that most of the um, irregular reporting coming out of public education always seems to go back to areas like uh, Oregon and Seattle and California. you got another one. That's right. Here we've got a mother who's upset when her child came home and she learned the child in a, um, a world history class was for some reason given an ethnic studies question. Two of those questions involved uh, uh, hot sexual ideology issues that we've been reading about in the news and one involved the inability of men to get pregnant and this this uh, student thought that men cannot get pregnant. You this, know. this was on a quiz, this was a That's test right. question. This was a test question. Can men get pregnant? The student answered uh, that they can't and was essentially marked incorrect. <laughs> and another had to do with male genitalia, which seemed again a scientifically, biologically obvious answer and yet was also marked wrong. And so th the mother uh, spoke about this to a lo local talk show host and the story kind of went viral from there. Um, it left people wondering why on earth in a world history class would students be asked these questions anyway and I think it gave some fuel to those who say that there's indoctrination going on in the classroom. Yeah, I'm not sure where we go from there, Michael. If we're starting to grade children for answering questions like men cannot get pregnant, you say affirmative men cannot get pregnant and the teacher marks it wrong. I, I don't know where we go from there. Now I'm confused. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, what happens when these kids get to medical school? I mean, that's the question. Do you really want an OBGYN that doesn't know basic biology, that doesn't know which gender can give birth? Uh, this, this is indeed indoctrination that not even the Bolsheviks thought of. Um, Seattle Public Schools, the district said 
that uh, the district is committed to fostering inclusive environments, this explains it all, right? Mm -hmm. That encourage the exploration of contemporary issues. Well, number one, you don't have to deny reality to be inclusive. And number two, biology isn't an issue to be debated, it's science. Yes, Faith, do you get the sense that young people genuinely are beginning to believe this or are just being uh, led to believe this by uh, teachers or those with an agenda inside administrations? Or, or do you think this is something culturally that we should be aware of, that children are starting to adopt this as normal, that men can get pregnant? Do you, do you think that's something that's becoming more common amongst kids? That's what I, they really yeah. believe. I do think so. It's hard to believe whether or not they truly believe this or if they're just playing along yeah. for the sake of it. Um, You've done a lot of reporting on it. This is not the first story as it relates to this uh, gender ideology. That's right. I mean, and unfortunately, although we have reported on things in Seattle public schools or out west, we're actually seeing it in a lot of medium to large districts all across the country, even in the Midwest. And so it's something that I think um, matters a lot. And it's something also we're seeing unions get behind, and so I think there's a concern even for small rural districts or places where um, parents kind of feel like, well, things are still okay here, Yes, that this could be brought in um, because the bureaucracy of public education is large and it's very national, and um, I, I think, you know, we need to be paying attention. Yeah, I've often wondered what the ultimate why is. What's the point of it? Like, you know, what, what is the push exactly? Um, Maybe we can't get into that here, but it, it, it just seems like such an extreme, excessive, ridiculous thing to push down the throats of kids, and yet it's happening, and it must be, there must be an end goal. It seems like there's a, there's a desire to challenge traditional norms, traditional categories. Sometimes I think it's tied to this idea um, that somehow there are uh, people or classes of society who are oppressed, and so there's a desire to go after the perceived uh, top dogs, which sometimes are, who are gonna be their white, heterosexual, uh, nuclear family, these all become targets, yes. um, I think. And so some of the gender ideology, I think, is partly to do with that, because if you can um, get people to question gender and the basic ideas of sex, then all of a sudden the nuclear family doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, truth mother and father. Well. The truth itself can cease to exist really, yeah. right? Yeah, and if uh, gender ideology uh, becomes more of a religion, then gender transition is sort of a sacrament. I uh, loved this story at readlion.com. This was um, uh, going from something insane to something that makes total sense to me as a parent anyway. And that is a study, Josh, that confirms Shazam, you want to mentally well-adjusted kid, uh, <laughs> discipline and attention um, and all the kind of basic things I thought parents understood matters. That's right. So this uh, research from the Institute for Family Studies and Gallup uh, suggested that a warm, responsive, and rule-bound parenting style leads to the best outcomes. <laughs> that would be a parent who is engaged, so they're not total authoritarians, but they parent with authority. There are rules. I thought that was an important distinction. Authoritarian mm. is different, Michael, than ath having authority. Right? There is a difference. Yeah, I wish I had, my parents had known that. <laughs> um, you know, I was uh, interested in, in this uh, bit from our uh, story. 
the CDC's summary and suggestions on mental health in America's young people, quote, almost completely ignore the most important known determinant of youth mental health, parent-child relationships, end quote. And such surveys, quote, do not even ask, do not even ask about parental youth relationships, end quote. I mean, they're not even asking about the most important relationship in a child's life. And why not? It's probably not politically correct. And probably one of the most significant things in this study as I read it, it was not dependent on race or socioeconomic status. It, it, across the board, this same set of standards applied evenly to all categories of people. This element of parenting is all that matters. Yeah, that's right. I mean. And it really makes you wonder, why would the CDC be ignoring the significance of a parent-child relationship? Are they ignoring it? Are they, it, and I think you're right. I think there's evidence that it is part of this. It's something that we just kind of hit on yeah. a minute ago. It's worse than ignoring. They're undermining it. I mean, and we talk about, and we'll be talking about here, uh, cases where they're getting in between the parent and the child, yes. in between what the parent knows about the child. Faith, um, I don't mean to embarrass you, but you are the youngest on the panel, so I have to defer to you because uh, while we all use social media to agree, we know that young people are almost addicted to it. And you guys have a story at readlion.com about young people and the next generation, how social media is just changing their entire worldview, right? Yeah, we do have a story, and it just goes to show that social media is presenting a lie necessary like um, in some instances like people are believing things that aren't real because they're seeing it online L literal fiction they, they believe to be true Josh yeah that's that's right so the some of the research suggests that there's a biological reason for this actually around age 10 your the brain starts to look for social cues and you know uh, you've parented children through that age range oh, all yeah. of a sudden peers matter a little bit more well when, and they get a dopamine hit. And it's true for adults too, but for the child's brain where they're, they're, they have less restraint because of the prefrontal cortex. So there's all this brain science that suggests essentially social media is very addictive for children and, and quite drug-like, and they can't hardly restrain themselves. And so um, in one case, I thought this was interesting, They when children would see an image of something illegal or dangerous, they would react against it. Unless it had enough likes, social media likes, and then all of a sudden they warmed to the concept or whatever it was being presented. Interesting. So the, just that social idea of acceptance immediately changed the way they perceived reality. Michael, I know this just from being the parent of teenagers. Uh, my kids have said that friends of theirs don't really know how to converse with people. Um, going to a restaurant and talking to a waiter or a waitress or asking for directions or help. Uh, I'm proud to say my kids can, but they say they notice that a lot of their peers genuinely don't know how to speak to people. And I can only assume that's well, phones and social media. Yeah. Um, you know, Moms for Liberty uh, likes to say that we don't co-parent with the government. Well, <laughs> Breaking news here, you do co-parent with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. <laughs> um, the central question for parents, I think, in all this is who do you want to influence your child's identity and sexuality? Is it their peers? Is it strangers on social media? 
Is it teachers who think men can give birth? I mean, these are very important questions. And you need to understand that the iPhone or whatever smartphone that you have is a co-parent now. Yes. And so the question is, what do you do about it? And, and honestly, I think you need to do three things. Number one, you need to pay attention. You need, need to understand that that is a, a maybe a third parent in the household, that phone. Uh, number two, I think we need to look at minimum age limits for social media accounts. Now, we're talking about that in Congress, but I think parents can set that too. And then the other one is maximum use limits. You know, how much do they use during the day? This uh, story at readlion.com, as we close out before I ask you your favorite stories of the week, I gotta ask you about the Harvard president. This uh, individual, three different university presidents made news, of course, in the last week in their testimony before Congress on anti-Semitism on their campuses. One of them was fired, one of them hung tough. Her name was Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard. Uh, since that kerfuffle, it's come to light that Claudine Gay has quite a history that may be questionable uh, in terms of her academic standing, in terms of her writings. Maybe she's plagiarized some things, and you've covered it the lion. That's right. So the Harvard president um, hasn't been in post very long as a president. Um, Bill Ackman, a billionaire hedge fund manager and Harvard alum, had inside information, he said her appointment may have been influenced by the university's diversity, equity, and inclusion office. She was in African American studies and had done um, less scholarship than most of her humanities colleagues for her position. She has been promoted along the years. Only 11 peer-reviewed publications, which, and I have an academic background. I was in academia and, and can vouch for this one. One person who sat on a lot of tenure committees said, that might get you an associate professor uh, tenure, really? um, but not full professor. And so her qualifications do seem thin. Um, and then in addition, there have been allegations, credible allegations of plagiarism that she's lifted paragraphs, not cited them correctly. Um, and so, you know, I think the public may not think plagiarism is as big a deal as academics do, but I can tell you for sure, academics take it very seriously. That's, you know, Michael, as a, as a uh, ink-stained wretch, as they call you people in journalism, <laughs> um, you know better than anybody, to plagiarize is still a big deal in your world. It is. It's a very serious offense. And even the kids at the Harvard student newspaper seem to understand that, even more than the board at, at Harvard perhaps the president and you know hundreds of faculty members who are still supporting the president there don't seem to understand what those student journalists at Harvard understand, which is you can't steal ideas from other people and not give them credit. Um, and when the New York Post approached Harvard about this, way back in October, before all of this hit, not only did they not do anything about it, but they threatened the New York Post legally wow. for having brought it up. So we close this show, as we like to every show, by asking uh, our uh, Reed Lion authors what they like best, what story piques their interest and they mm -hmm. hope you'll pay attention to as well. Faith, we'll start with you. Your favorite story of the week at ReadLion.com. My favorite story this week was the Harvard story of them showing support for Claudia Gay. 
um, just because I think it just goes to show what's happening at the university. Yeah, and a lot of people would suggest, by the way, I would add on that, that uh, Claudine Gay, as a black woman, while Liz McGill, a white woman at Penn, was fired. She was not, and a lot of people suspect, mm -hmm from her qualifications to the fact that she was allowed to stay, it may strictly be because of her race. Absolutely. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, your favorite of the week. Well, there's a case out of uh, California where a couple of teachers refused to keep parents in the dark about their uh, kids' gender identity at school. And so they got crosswise with the school and the district and filed suit against the district. They, they shouldn't be made to lie or hide from the parents what's going on. And they, got, they even got an injunction against the district to stop the, the district from retaliating against them or, or any adverse job action. But the fact of the matter is, apparently, they have been locked out of the of school. They're not allowed to come back, even though there's an injunction there. And you know, one of the uh, litigants said the plaintiffs said they hope uh, the district will comply with the injunction. Well, I hope so. It's a court order. You know, and I, I think this is about, you know, uh, the rule of law and imperiousness and lawlessness as much as anything. Josh Mann, your favorite of the week. Yeah, we, um, we covered Oklahoma opening their enrollment for their school choice scholarship program and uh, reportedly received 30,000 applications in just the first 90 minutes. Wow. I think it goes to show that there's a huge appetite from parents in Oklahoma for school choice that's going to help those parents provide what they see as the best education possible for their kids. Good stuff. Panel, thank you so much for this this week. This is the kind of stuff you find every single week. And I hope you keep up to date on all the news at readlion.com. And until we see you the next time, for all of us at the Lion, thanks for downloading the show. See you next time.